So thank you for doing that, everyone. What a pleasure. And please now let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable and at ease to listen, not so much to remember or take notes or, you know, try to pass the quiz at the end of the class, (laughs) but really more to listen to what touches that wisdom that you already carry, what you already know in your heart. So today's the first day of summer. Yesterday was the summer solstice. We had the longest day and the shortest night. And now, even though it's so beautifully light, we're headed back to the darkness. It's a tiny bit shorter, the light today. And it's such a magical thing. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the full eclipse of the sun. Certainly some of you have seen the eclipse of the moon, but it's especially amazing when you see a full eclipse of the sun because it starts to get darker and darker as the moon starts to eclipse the sun. And then all of a sudden, when it happens, there's, if, you, if you're up anyway, there's this huge shadow that starts racing across the landscape, which is complete darkness that all of a sudden that engulfs you. And if you look in the right way, you can actually feel or sense the movement of the planets, the movement of the moon and the sun and the earth. It's somehow as if you're in this big dance that we, we could call the movement of the spheres. Um, and we're in this dance. This is what we live in. I remember going to Chartres Cathedral in France a few years ago. And one of the things that I wanted to do, I went with my, my family, my wife and, and daughter, is Chartres has one of the great and original uh, European versions of the labyrinth in the, in the floor of Chartres Cathedral. And pilgrims a thousand years ago used to come and walk the labyrinth. So I thought, great, I'm going to go to Chartres Cathedral and walk the labyrinth, right? Well, it turned out, you know, Chartres Cathedral, gorgeous, beautiful place that it is, is also a big tourist spot. I mean, how could it not be? I was one of the tourists in line there, right? And there were lots of others of us. And we entered the cathedral, and there were so many people. And yes, in the middle of the floor, they had to move some chairs away sometimes to do it because they'd use it for other things, was this exquisite labyrinth. Um, And they have certain hours when you can walk it. It's where they take the chairs and other things that they put out on the floors of the floor of the cathedral away. And so it got to those hours. We waited for the labyrinth hours. But still there were hordes of tourists or, or visitors. I should really say pilgrims to that cathedral. Tourists, pilgrims, whatever. And um, so I'm, I'm about to walk the, the labyrinth and I'm standing there, you know, trying to get very meditative about it because this is the labyrinth in Chartres Cathedral that people walked on their knees for a thousand years and so forth. Um, and there's this long line, and I think, oh, it's going to be crowded, right? What is it to walk? You want it to be meditative and quiet, and there's this whole line, huge number of people. And we start to walk. Uh, I, I imagine a number of you have walked the labyrinths before. You get toward the center, and then you start to move out again, and you don't quite get to go in the middle, and you go through this whole kind of long series of journey to get actually into the center. And what was amazing is after I got into the labyrinth and was walking for a while, and all these other people were around walking, it became absolutely blissful. 
because we were all moving in a kind of grace and a kind of order that felt with our human bodies like the music of the spheres. And in fact, there were a few tourists, I won't say which part of New York they were from, but anyway, (laughs) who marched in the cathedral and walked right across the labyrinth (laughs) while all these people were doing the circumambulations and stuff, right? With their cameras and stuff like that. And it would have been possible for one to have some judgments about these people. (laughs) But then, thought I, after the judgment had begun to arise, I looked and I thought, no, no, this is such a feeling of all these beings moving like the great spheres of the cosmos. And the these visitors are like comets that come in, right? <laughs> From way out there in New York and make kind of large circles through the, through the labyrinth and then go back out away from the solar system. And then I was happy and the comets came through and we kept moving. So the marking of the turning of the seasons um, is really just the reminder that we are in this great dance. I went last week, I was away down in Palm Springs for the International Transpersonal Association's 16th gathering or meeting. And it's an association that is trying to bring or has tried to bring a a, a spiritual and visionary perspective into psychology, transpersonal psychology, into ecology, into science, into politics. And it was, as we said when we were down there, the usual suspects. Ram Dass and Houston Smith and various um, healers and uh, um, visionary physicists and ecologists and so forth. And it was actually quite wonderful. And one of the themes that I listened to and listened for in this particular conference was the big question, are we headed into the light? Things going to get better. Or are we headed into the dark? Here are all these visionary people. Remember Charles Dickens when he begins, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Doesn't it feel that way somehow? Should we be optimistic? Or should we be pessimistic? Kind of another language for that question. There are a lot of reasons for sensing that we're going into the dark and not just the turning of the seasons, as I mentioned. But in fact, to acknowledge the possibility that things are going to get darker and worse worldwide might be a wise thing spiritually. Remember that line from Plato that I use where he said, only the dead know the end of war those of us who might wish it to be otherwise, here's Plato 2,500 years ago saying something quite simple that is unfortunately still true. Or Joseph Campbell, who puts it this way, the first step to the knowledge of the wonder and mystery of life is the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly realm as well as its glory. The realization that this is just how it is and it will not be changed. Those who think they know how the universe should have been had they created it, without pain, without sorrow, without death and change, 
are unfit for illumination. So if you really want to help this world, what you will have to teach is how to live in it. And that no one can do who has not themselves learned how to live in the joyful sorrow and the sorrowful joy of the knowledge of life as it is. So maybe it's spiritually bracing and at the same time spiritually wise for us to say, this is the way it is, this is the game. It is samsara. And if you read in the Visuddhimagga, one of the great Buddhist texts, it describes the different ages, the yugas as they speak of them in India, the gold age and silver age, and the fact that modern time is the Kali Yuga, um, which is an era that includes decline, quite a bit of it. And then it describes how decline can get stronger with caustic waters. It doesn't say acid rain, but it sounds like that. You know, and great winds and uh, scorching heat, you know, warming fires. For the, and, and along with these uh, grow conspicuous greed, um, developing hatred, and increasing blindness among beings. And out of these, worldwide, um, increase stealing, lying, immorality, and so forth. So this is the text description of both the psychological and the physical deterioration of an age. Some simple language for it in the Buddhist and Hindu traditions is just this is the nature of samsara. Samsara is a Sanskrit word that means the cycles of birth and death that we get caught in over and over and over again and that have joy and sorrow woven into them and and creation and destruction and it's just the way it is and we are entangled in it. At the conference there were presentations of some of these themes of the unrelenting quality of environmental destruction, the loss of habitat and of species, overpopulation, the loss of rainforest and coral reef and the pollution of the oceans and the desertification of tillable soil, of the continuing growth of war and conflict. Stanley Kubrick put it this way. He said, the great nations have always acted like gangsters and the small nations like prostitutes. And this has continued. Pretty depressing, actually, isn't it? The continuing growth of consumerism Um, until we're making water a commodity that you have to buy around the world and the loss of family agriculture to corporations, Um, the growing spread of weapons where the U.S. wouldn't sign the worldwide ban on landmines even though a hundred other countries had signed it because we didn't feel safe to sign it, if you can imagine. And where the nuclear threat um, we are now engaging in, in devising a new generation of nuclear weapons rather than putting them away and, and reducing their number. And where we're still selling weapons in uncalcul- incalculable amounts around the world. Materialism, anything for money, gross national product, gross national product is... <laughs> 
the supreme value, not the education of the people or the water or the health or the children or the sense of community, but gross national product. And the incredible pain of racism worldwide and in our culture and tribalism and the conflicts that go on for generations, the poor Palestinians and the Israelis, you know, and the prison system, which is based on punishment and hatred and torture, not an accident. The income gap that continues to grow. So, uh, Things, you know, the rich get richer and poor get poorer. I look at the politics of this country as a game that's played on the people. The illusion of choice. It's interesting that the important things have been reduced in number. Oil companies, communications, medical care, insurance, banking. All these firms have been merged and reduced. The choices are very limited. But if you want a bagel, we've got 26 flavors. There are 400 kinds of mustard in this country. These are, this is the tyranny of choice and the illusion of choice. So there was a lot of talk about the difficulties and the kind of public deception that um, used to happen a little bit and maybe more, but with modern communication. Mark Twain put it this way. He said, uh, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. So there's this uh, sense somehow that uh, um, things are getting darker and we can really be concerned about it. Um, I was looking at several recent books that compared the modern situation in America to uh, the fall of the Roman Empire, just making a whole series of quite compelling Uh, comparisons uh, about the illusion of invincibility while spending more and more wealth on military and sending armies out far and wide and um, not paying attention to uh, uh, the needs of others and a government that's out of touch in some ways with its own people in the world and a kind of belligerence and the gap between rich and poor and the rise of circuses and so forth. And one person who was at this conference who was Uh, speaking, who was a British presenter, somebody raised their hand at the end because he was talking about things from the British perspective, said, well, what do you think we can learn from England? He said, I hope you Americans can learn how to end an empire gracefully. (laughs) So it doesn't take much, and I'm talking about it, but all you have to do really is turn on the news or open the paper um, pretty much daily. And there are these kinds of energies and concerns that we share, the loss of community, the loss of the sacred. And it's hard because it's a lot of suffering for a lot of human beings, for a lot of beings of all kinds. And because we're connected with them, it's our suffering that we have to hold and imagine and carry in our bones and our hearts. Then there were the optimists who spoke about this amazing life and the possibilities of this life, you know, and not just complaining about it. 
There's an old Hindu saying, he who cannot dance says the floor is uneven. (laughs) And the pessimists are just people who don't know how to deal with what's really happening in some more uplifting and awakened way. So here was Houston Smith, gracious, wonderful old you know, gentlemen talking about the re-enchantment, the re-sacralization of society and how it's inevitable that capitalism and consumerism and so forth is really playing itself out. It's not satisfying people in the end. It's got to change. Or Stan Groff, who stood up there as an as a immigrant from Czechoslovakia and talked about how in the 1980s, the world was still on nuclear hair trigger between the, in the Cold War between the Soviet Empire and the Western capitalist empire. Um, and that even as late as 1987, 1988, no one could have imagined what would happen. It was almost unimaginable to think that all of Eastern Europe and Central Asia and all of this huge Soviet empire, Latvia, Romania, Slovakia, Poland, and so forth, would in a short time not only become free independent countries with their own elections and their own problems, as we all have who have elections and so forth, but uh, join the European Union, join NATO, become part of a world community with almost no loss of life. The whole thing dismantled. Who could have even thought of it a decade before? It would have seemed absolutely impossible. So you should start thinking, as Alice or whoever it was in Wonderland says, you know, to consider a number of impossible things before breakfast every morning, because you never know. <laughs> or Rashna Imhalsli, who is a, an old friend and a follower of um, a number of spiritual teachers in India that I know for, for years. Uh, she's also an Indian psychotherapist. And I met her at the conference. And one of the things she's doing is sort of comparing notes. What are you doing these days, Rashna? She said, well, I'm working in Kashmir. I saw her because there was a presentation of the work of uh, Bert Hellinger, if I remember the name correctly, which is a kind of... Uh, family therapy in which a person will set out a dramatic scene of the relations and difficulties in their whole family life and people will play those parts and out of it will arise a bigger picture of the whole karma of that scene and a kind of reconciliation becomes possible by making it conscious. And she said, oh yeah, I'm doing that work in Kashmir. She said, between the Muslims and the Hindus and in families where people have been killed and, and terrible trauma has happened. And she said, it's amazing because everyone knows that they're really in the part of a larger stream of karma, that it's not just their own family or their own father or their own brother, but really we're all in it together for generations that people are quite willing to see this bigger picture. And there's a tremendous possibility of healing, she said, as dark as it may feel to some people right now in America, she said it's the opposite in India. With our new prime minister that was just selected, the, the elections after uh, Sonia Gandhi declined to be prime minister and appointed him uh, in her place, she said uh, the 
fundamentalist BJP, which is which was a quite fundamentalist Hindu conservative government, was thrown out. Um, and there's a a great sense of uh, openness in the country now, and a possibility of groups reconciling with one another. She said one of the most remarkable things is that the new Prime Minister of India, who is a Sikh, is this wonderful, wise, uh, dignified, gentlemanly figure who would never have been elected because he's not a politician, he's too wise for that, but he was put in that place. It happens that he was actually born in Pakistan before the nations were divided. And Pervez Musharraf, General Musharraf, who's the head of Pakistan, actually was born in New Delhi. So they were born in each other's countries. And now they're kind of looking at one another. In fact, when the, when the new Prime Minister of India was installed recently in the ritual, that whole part of Pakistan celebrated because he was one of their people. So there's this whole sense of reconciliation and possibility between countries that are happening in India and Pakistan. And she felt enormously hopeful for the world. And people presented all these collaborative models based on interdependence, the interdependence of politics and uh, society and economics and spiritual interdependence. The kind of sacred interbeing that is, in fact, what is true for us as human beings. And then there was Ramdas. Ramdas was kind of the, the closing Dharma talk for the whole event. And he sat there as he does and told stories. Usually the stories are about himself and his life in wonderful ways. And about the, this sacred interbeing, the possibility of seeing divinity everywhere. So he said, there I was driving down the New York State uh, Thruway in the 70s, Baba Ramdas, right? In an old Chrysler, an old, big old Chrysler with the kind of chrome that goes almost up to the clouds, right? Those big fins and enough chrome that, you know, you can see yourself in every part of the car. (laughs) And I'm driving along, he said, um, and I've got my, my beads with me, And I'm singing to Krishna down New York State Thruway and doing Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. And just as happy as can be because I'm singing to God and the the beautiful, you know, Hudson River Valley is going by and it's a lovely day and um, I'm I'm praying and what more could I want just to be, uh, open my heart to the divine and having this beautiful countryside go by. Um, And I'm really getting into it, he says. And you know, you need to know this for the story. Krishna, when he's depicted in India as one of the incarnations of God, is often depicted as blue. Uh, Krishna's color is blue when he dances with the gopis and so forth, plays his flute and so forth. He's this being whose color is this kind of radiant blue. So he said, I'm driving along, singing to God, basically, and just in this wonderful space. He didn't say what he was on, but we'll leave that aside for a moment. (laughs) And he said, all of a sudden, I looked in the rearview mirror, and there's this wonderful bright blue light. And I think, oh, Krishna is coming, right? (laughs) So after I was pulled over... 
he said, I'm still Hare Krishna. I'm still so happy because Krishna has come. I've chanted and called to God and there, sure enough. And so I pull my car over and the car behind me pulls over and then the guy gets out and he walks up to my window and he taps on it and he thinks he's a state trooper. <laughs> but I know that he's really Krishna who's come to bless me. So I roll my window down and I smile at him because I am so excited that God heard me chanting and decided to pay me a visit. And I look at him with so much love. You know, what can I do for you? At that moment, he said, I would have given him anything, but he only wanted my license and registration, right? So he took my license and registration and went back to the car to call home or wherever he calls, I guess, right? And then he came back to the window and he looked at me for a little bit and he said, uh, you are going to slow. <laughs> said, just delicious. Here's God telling you to go, go a little bit faster. You're going too slow. And I just loved him. He said, I looked at him, I thanked him so much for his wisdom, you know, and so forth. And he said he doesn't, didn't think that they were usually treated that way. And he didn't really know what to talk about, so he started to talk about the old Chrysler, you know, a guy thing, right? Even Krishna has to get into cars once in a while, chariots. So we had this conversation. And finally, at the end, he looked at me, and he somehow blessed me. He said, go on your way. And I thought, oh, I've been blessed by God, right? <laughs> Roll up the window, kept chant, started singing to Krishna again. And as I started to pull out, I looked in the rearview mirror, and sure enough, there was this, this man standing by his car waving goodbye to me. He said, how many times do you get that, you know? Ah, so... How is it that we see this world? You know, here's the, here's the poem from Hafiz, where he writes, Once a group of thieves stole a rare diamond larger than a goose egg. Its value could have easily bought a thousand horses and two thousand acres of the most fertile land in Shiraz. The thieves got drunk that night to celebrate their great haul. But during the course of the evening, the effects of the liquor and their mistrust of each other grew to such an extent, they decided to divide the stone into pieces. Of course, then, the priceless became lost. Most everyone is lousy at math and does that to the divine, dissects the invisible one by thinking and saying, this is my beloved, he or she looks like this, and acts like that. How could that moron over there really be the Holy One? I love it reading Hafiz, especially in this time when there's such a kind of um, insane prejudice and uh, simplification of who people that live in the Middle East might be. Uh, just crazy. And then here's this beautiful wisdom and poetry that comes out like fountains from Rumi and Hafiz and a thousand years of it. So we could look at the world in the little pieces, break the diamond up, as Hafiz says, and see, well, this is, this is sacred and divine and this is, that's not, you know. Which is it? Which perspective? 
pessimism, falling apart, going into darkness, the evil that's out there that's growing, or optimism, where we, instead of seeing the evil out there, where we contain all of good and evil, we contain this potential of the universe and from it there are a thousand ways to live wisely, a whole new interdependent synergy. Which would you choose? When you stop and listen deeply, you begin to realize that hope is almost as great a deceiver as despair. In fact, both optimism and pessimism are just ideas. They're just thoughts. The average person has, it said, 67,000 thoughts in a day. And most of them are repeats, right? (laughs) How do you even know which of these thoughts to believe? The thoughts create the world in a way And yet the thoughts are empty. The only power they have is the power we give them if we believe them. And if we stop for a moment and listen, the opposite of optimism and pessimism is not realism, but mystery. Mystery and compassion. Here. Some enlightened words for you to reflect on. First, from the third Zen ancestor. The great way is not difficult. This is the great way with a capital G-W. It's the way of freedom, of enlightenment. The great way is not difficult for those who cling to no preferences. When attachment and hatred are both absent, Everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. That's pretty strong medicine, isn't it? No opinions. And then here is a passage from the Sutta Nipata, from the words of the Buddha in the same vain. This I declare after investigation into the nature of reality. There is nothing among all views, philosophies, and opinions that such a one as I, such a free being, might embrace. Seeing misery in views without adopting any one of them, I discovered true peace not by opinion or philosophy or tradition or holy works can one say purity exists nor by their absence, nor by thinking that someone or something is superior, inferior, or equal to oneself. For that reason one disputes. But for the wise one, the notions of higher and lower and equal disappear. With whom could such a one enter into dispute? 
The accomplished one does not, by philosophical view or opinion, become arrogant. They are not led into the resting places of the mind. For one who is free from opinions, there are no ties. But for those who grasp after views and opinions, they wander about the world annoying people. <laughs> you may have met them. So this is, this is the pinnacle of teachings of the Zen ancestors and of the uh, liberation of the, of the Buddha. These beautiful words. We can see how much our views one way or the other, get in the way of opening the heart to the mystery of life that's in front of us. As Zhuang Su said, the philosopher is wedded to his opponent. And instead, we are invited to our own enlightenment by these words, by these teachings, to what is called the wisdom of insecurity, not having a view about how things will happen, but rather relaxing in uncertainty. What Ajahn Chah, my teacher, used to say, my na, all the time. It's uncertain, isn't it? Will it get better? My na. Will it get worse? My na. We so much want to know. I mean, me too. You know, I'm looking at my daughter who's in college and talking about doing her you know, overseas studies for a year in this place or that, and what would be good for her. And you know how it is with your kids and stuff like that. Or my friends who have cancer. Or family members in difficulty. Or Iraq and Afghanistan. Or the elections that are coming up. Wouldn't you like to know what's going to happen? But when we stop and open and listen... This great mystery opens, the mystery of life itself. There's this vast silence always around everything. Oh, nobly born, remember this huge silence and the cycles, biological, physical, cultural, joy and sorrow, praise and blame, birth and death, the rise and fall of individuals, of dynasties, of civilizations. And yet underneath it, around it, in the middle of it, in Louisville at the corner of 4th and Walnut, says Thomas Merton, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people, that they were mine and I theirs, and that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of isolation and monastic holiness, self-isolation. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and joy, I laughed out loud. I had the immense joy of being a member of a race in which the divine spark became incarnate in all these forms. There's no way of telling people that they're all walking around shining like the sun. (laughs) 
Oh, nobly born, when we stop and listen, when we sit, even for a moment, our mind becomes quiet, the heart opens, and we can see again with the eyes of wisdom, with the heart of compassion. And you all know this. You all know these moments, know this truth. Sure, we forget it, but you know it as surely as you know your own name. That this small sense of self, what we call the body of fear, the one who thinks they're incarnated in this body and, you know, gets caught in the plot, which we all do, the American or the European or the African or the Buddhist or Muslim or whatever you think you are, you know, it's not who we really are. And some part of us, this knowing, senses the emptiness behind it all, like a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a rainbow, an echo, a phantom, a dream, says the Diamond Sutra. I mean, you look in the mirror, as I like to say, and you look older, right? But it's only your body that looks older. Actually, what's peculiar is you look in and you don't feel older necessarily because the mind doesn't exist, the consciousness doesn't exist in time. And the same thing's going to happen when you die. You'll be really surprised. There you are lying, you know, going through the whole drama of dying, and then it's going to happen. And then somewhere around then you're going to say, wow, that was a trip, that life. All those things I went through, you look back, you don't think so. But it's going to happen. It will. You'll see. So when Ajahn Jamnian was here a couple of weeks ago and he said, look at this world through the eye of wisdom, the witness to it all. But not even the witness, because you establish the sense of seeing it all like a dance, a drama, a dream. And then if you ask even more deeply, well, who is this witness? Who am I? And turn to look. What do you find? Inside, deeply. Mysterious, isn't it? Not quite sure. You try to put your finger, well, this is who I am. And it's nothing. And yet that nothing is conscious and open. It's a space of awareness. Space is even too limiting. There is this pure knowing that's not limited by your body or your feelings or your thoughts, that's always present. Okay, try not to be aware. Stop for a second. Don't be aware of anything. Can you do it? Doesn't work, does it? Rest your attention in that awareness instead of on the screen with the movie and the whole plot, you know, for a moment. Let yourself return to what Ajahn Jamyin calls the deathless, the unborn, to the witnessing that is timeless, ever-present, allowing for all things, yet not caught in them. Enlightenment, freedom of heart, is not far away. It is possible for you, here and now, and in any moment, when you're caught, it's also possible to be free. It is. And it's not even just being in the present, but it's being in eternity. We think of the present as kind of sandwiched between the past and the future. 
but it's here and now always, eternity. From the Prajnaparamita texts of perfect wisdom, those who attain perfect wisdom are forever inspired by the conviction that the infinite variety of forms of this world in all their relativity, far from being a disturbance and dangerous distraction to spiritual path, are really a healing medicine. Why? Because by the very fact that they are interdependent on each other and therefore have no separate self, they express the mystery and energy of all-embracing consciousness and love. Every single being in the interconnected world is a dweller in this boundless infinity and consciousness of love. It is who we really are. We become in a moment present for the mystery of these strange bodies and community and life forms and sounds that we make out of this hole in our body. So bizarre, really. And then the sounds come in holes in other people's bodies and they have all these images and pictures. I mean, it's so strange, isn't it? We become present for the mystery because we are the mystery. It is who we are. And then we awake in this to our love, our connectedness. Instead of the mind and all the opinions, in this silence, we live from the heart. Again, Thomas Merton. We cannot master everything taste everything, understand everything, drain every experience to its last dregs. But if we have the courage to let almost everything else go, we will probably be able to retain the one thing necessary for us. And you must listen to what that is. Happiness consists in finding out precisely what that one deep necessary thing is and gladly giving ourselves to it. We see in the Buddhist temple that we sit in for this evening these statues, these kind of archetypal images of the Buddha and Kuan Yin of the female and masculine feminine forms of the Buddha. And they're really there beside being pieces of art and tradition to remind us of our own Buddha nature. We come and we sit together in meditation. And even in a half an hour, we see a hundred or a thousand thoughts come and go. The arising and passing away of experience, feelings, perspectives, beliefs, views, pleasures and pains. Whole worlds. Just as the Buddha sat and saw lifetime after lifetime, saw the whole of samsara and then stepped out of samsara. Saw it with the eye of wisdom, rested in the heart of compassion, and said, wow, I was caught in that for a long time, wasn't I? Aren't we? Don't we? We know that there is another way to be in this world. There is another perspective, another vision. And it comes to us as grace 
It comes to us when we sit quietly or walk in the mountains or look in the eyes of someone we love. Or make love or make music. Nothing in all nature is so lovely and so vigorous, so perfectly at home in its environment as a fish in the sea. Its surroundings give to it a beauty, quality, and power which are not its own. We take it out, and at once a poor, limp, dull thing, fit for nothing, is gasping for its life. So the heart, sunk in the divine, living a life of silence and prayer is supported, filled, transformed in beauty by a vitality and a power which are not its own. This is from Evelyn Underhill, the great scholar of mysticism. When we remember, and it just takes a moment, when we listen, there is an awakening of the heart, a sense of mystery, a dance, a caring, a love. And then we can act without attachment to the fruit of the action, without even being the person who's in charge somehow doing it. We become the servant of the world. We become the voice and the action of something that's sacred and holy. And plant beautiful seeds. We become what the Dalai Lama was joyfully called a rigorous optimist no matter what happens. I mean, here's the Dalai Lama whose troubles are as great as anyone in this room, probably, maybe more. And yet he's happy. And not only is he happy, he has this deep trust in a hundred thousand mahakalpas of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that the world is awakening. Because it's us, and we are. Or we become like Ari Ratana in Sri Lanka, the elder who called the people of the island together when the Norwegians brokered the peace plan to their 17-year uh, year civil war and offered from his community of peacemakers that 500-year peace plan for the island, saying it took us 500 years to get into this trouble, 400 years of colonialism, 500 years of conflict between the Tamils, the Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, several hundred years of economic disparity between the rich lowlands and the poorer highlands. So we need the first year a ceasefire and the second year a truce. And by the end of five years, we need to rebuild roads and schools. And in 10 years to start learning one another's languages and trading our children to learn in each other's schools and in 25 years to work with economic disparity and, and political disparity and in 50 years to begin to unify ourselves as a country and in 100 years we'll have a council to see how we're doing and then in 200 years again in 300. Can you imagine that in Washington? I mean, we think, oh, what's going to happen the next election cycle, two years or four years? But from the place of wisdom, of timelessness, 500 years, a few more lifetimes, a few mahakalpas. Jeffrey Sachs of the Earth Island Institute at Columbia University did a hard-nosed economic analysis of the poorest uh, nations in the world and what it would take to feed all the children and all the hungry people 
to get clean water and health care and what the benefits would be for the world economy ha huh, and for the world safety and it is less than 10% of what we spend worldwide on weapons that's all it would take to do that less than 10% of what we spend globally on our arms race so it's not just a failure of economics or politics it is a failure of imagination of the spirit and when we come back to this silence when we let go of views and opinions praise and blame gain and loss pessimism optimism we come to live in this place where life is trustworthy again where it unfolds in the most beautiful way as Rilke says, being alive means not counting or numbering, but ripening like a tree which doesn't force its sap and stands confidently in the storms of winter, not afraid that summer may not come. It does come. It always comes. And so as we become still and the heart takes over the work of the mind, we become gracious, easy. We plant seeds. You know, we look in the rearview mirror and, oh, Krishna has come to visit, right? <coughs> Thank you for coming. We live as a bodhisattva, not because, oh, the ego's taken over, now I'm going to be this great bodhisattva, but because it's us. It's all of us awakening together. And short or long is just an illusion. This is our garden, and we till it and plant it and care for it. So one last little story for you. There are two theories about crime and how to deal with it. And any of you who's had any contact with the uh, injustices and insanity of our current criminal so-called justice system and prisons could weep. But anyway, listen. There are two theories about crime and how to deal with it. Any crime guys say you have to think like a criminal. Probably any terrorist guys say that too. You have to think like a terrorist. And some police learn that so well they get a kind of criminal mentality themselves. How I'm working with it is really pretty different. I see that humans are essentially pure and innocent and of one good nature. That's who we are by birthright. And that's what I'm affirming in the course of my day on the job. The fact is, that is my job. The cop part of it, well, I'm a peace officer, actually. Now, it's interesting how this works. When you hold this vision, a thought of unity, you frequently spot a criminal motive arising in someone like a spiritual radar. And things can be prevented that way. I've seen it. And not only that, When I'm holding the view that such a person is complete already, that they don't need to steal, that the universe will provide for them, often it happens that way, even when it gets to conflict. I arrested a very angry fellow who singled me out for real animosity. When I had to take him to the paddy wagon, he spit in my face. That was something. And then he went after me with a chair. We handcuffed him, put him in the truck. Well, on the way, I just had to get past this bad picture of things, and again I affirmed to myself, this guy and I are actually brothers. When I got to the station, I was moved spontaneously to say, look, 
If I've done anything to offend you, I apologize. The paddy wagon driver looked at me as if I was totally nuts. <laughs> Next day, I had to take him from where he'd been housed overnight to criminal court. When I picked him up, I thought, well, if you trust this vision, you're not going to have to handcuff him. So I didn't. And then we got to the spot in the middle of the corridor, which was the place where he'd have jumped me if he had that intention. And he stopped suddenly, and so did I. I paid attention. And then he said, You know, I thought about what you said yesterday, and I want to apologize. I just felt this deep appreciation. Turned out on his rap sheet, he'd done a lot of time in a couple of bad prisons and had trouble with the guards there. And I guess I symbolized something. And in a moment... I saw it turn around, saw a kind of healing, I believe. So what really happens if you're going to explore whether or not we are connected, whether to take a chance on this vision of reality? Maybe people will say you're taking the wrong chance, but you're taking chances without vision. Your vision becomes the protection and the reality from which it is born. So let's sit for a moment. Back to the breath and the body. Quiet the mind, open the heart. Very simple. O nobly born, remember your true nature. Remember who you really are. Trust it. Rest in this. Your own good heart. when you find in this week ahead that you're lost in the drama of things and the praise and blame and gain and loss, if you can take a moment to just stop and feel the silence around it all, that spaciousness, let the thoughts go as they will and drop from the thoughts back to the heart. And just listen. Look at it all with the eyes of wisdom. See how it works for you. Thank you. Blessings for the week ahead. Thank you. Be well. Good night.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.